I would have, I would have returned from Israel last night uh, and been, been totally jet lagged this morning. So uh, I am, I'm quite awake today. Uh, but uh, had we been in Israel, we would have uh, had a, a Bible study uh, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, probably about a week ago, uh, where uh, we would have uh, talked about Christ's first sermon, uh, which would have been Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That was his first sermon. Um, there's a beautiful little uh, uh, natural uh, amphitheater there where uh, I take the people, and you can stand down at the base of that little curve, the apex of it, and one person can speak and uh, you know, thousands of people can actually hear that person as you're overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's very idyllic, very pretty. Um, but that particular sermon, I don't know if you studied it recently, uh, but his first sermon uh, is basically based on the premise of he's the king, he's the Messiah, offering himself to Israel. Uh, and, he, and he's telling them, um, how should you live as a kingdom member? I mean, translated, how, how should a Christian live? And that's Matthew 5 through 7. Starts out with all the Beatitudes, blessed are the the meek and all those things. Uh, But if you study it, uh, his version of righteousness is different than the righteousness of the Pharisee. Theirs is follow all of our rules and regulations. And if you do that enough, you'll be holy and be found acceptable to God. Jesus comes along and says, that that is not how you get righteous. And so when you study his uh, sermon, it's a It's very interesting because he'll say on the one hand, it has been told unto you, but I say unto you. So he's going to say your false religious leaders tell you this, which is erroneous, but let me, the Messiah, tell you what truth is. And so he has a very different way of looking uh, at life for his uh, uh, people. Uh, He he says like in Matthew uh, chapter five, verse 43, that it's easy to love those who love you. Isn't it? I mean, that's that's easy. Uh, and And it's easy to hate those who, well, treat you dirty. It, that just comes natural. But he said, if you're my child in my kingdom, you need to live differently. You need to love those who love you. And if they persecute you, love them too. Totally different. Um, in Matthew chapter six, verses one to four, uh, when a Pharisee would go to the temple, uh, the way they tithed is they wanted to make as much noise as possible so everybody could see how righteous they were. So they had uh, giant boxes with a, like a, a shofar kind of ram's horn that when you stood there and dropped coinage into it, it would, it would you know, your money would spin down into that and, and make a clunking noise as it hit the box. Well, the longer you stood there and the more money you dropped in that thing, the more pious and holy you were. So they would go to worship with tons of shekels, I'm sure, and just coin after coin. And people, would be, I'm sure, were in shock, like, oh, Rabbi Yehuda is a holy man. He was at the box for 10 minutes, <laughs> dropping in the... What did Jesus say? Jesus says, uh, no, that's not holiness, because you just broadcast uh, how righteous you think you are. He says, basically, in my kingdom, Matthew 6, 1 to 4, uh, when you give, uh, do your alms, uh, your right hand and your left hand should not w- know what the other one's doing. So, uh, so as the offering went around this morning uh, and you were dropping something in there, uh, it, you, you, it, whatever hand you use, I'm left-handed, so I would probably use the left hand, but it would mean my right hand you know, wouldn't know what the left hand is doing. I mean, vice versa. You don't draw attention to yourself uh, in his kingdom. And he says, then the Lord will reward you on, on the day when he sees you. So kingdom living uh, in, in Christ's terms in his first sermon is radically different uh, than what the false religious leaders were telling you. Uh, Paul, as a rabbi, understands this motif about kingdom living, about how different a Christian is supposed to be. And when you get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, verses 13 through 17, uh, he really uh, 
boils down what he needs to talk to these Christians about that are living in a persecuted age who think that they're going through the tribulation and Paul's already laid to rest. No, you're not in the tribulation. It's not happened yet because the Antichrist hasn't come. The church hasn't been raptured. He's gone through all the arguments. And as he's gone through all of that uh, uh, deep eschatology about what's gonna happen at the end of the time, he needs to really turn and tell them, you know, uh, theology is highly practical. So we've, he said, I've talked to you about eschatology, how you're not in the end times, but you need to understand how to live in the time in which you're in. And so that's what he's going to do in verses 13 to 17 is uh, turn, uh, and he's going to answer the question, how should a Christian live for Christ in tough times? Because these are tough times. Uh, and he says, how should you live and before the Lord returns and calls his church home? What should you be doing? So this is like kingdom living in the here and now. So this is like a echo of Jesus's methodology in Matthew 5 to 7. Paul's going to say, let me, let me add to that and fine tune it. So we're going to only cover how many verses? One, one verse. Uh, why is we're going to do that? Because that verse is loaded with info that you need to know on how to live for Christ in tough times. So today we're only going to look at one supporting point of how you should live. And it is understanding your position or understanding your position in God, before God as a Christian. Um, notice what he says in verse 13. But we sh should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Why should uh, Christian leaders uh, thank God for their people? Uh, see the causal statement? Well, uh, because God has done what? He's chosen you from the beginning for salvation. How do you do this? I mean, how did we get saved? Uh, prepositions are important, are they not? They are. What, what say the balcony area? Yeah, yes. They're always so pious up there. Um, uh, he's chosen you from the beginning for salvation through, or the preposition is by means of, sanctification by means of spirit. Uh, and how'd this happen? Well, it happened in faith. Faith in what? Faith in the truth. What, what truth? The the gospel truth. You believed it to be true for yourself. So you can see there's a ton of stuff in there, isn't there? I, well, I see it. So uh, I have to pause and really analyze it. I mean, I was once not a Christian and then I became a Christian based on <clears throat> a lot of things we're going to talk about today. For me, I can, I remember when it happened. Uh, it was a Sunday uh, and it was 1967 uh, and it was the day right before school started. Uh, and I knew I was lost. Uh, yeah, I mean, when, when your mom's family members are telling them, if something doesn't happen to him, he's going to become a criminal. <laughs> and you're nine years old, something's not going well. So <clears throat> I knew, I knew I was in it. I knew where I was going. Uh, I was strong-willed um, from the very beginning when I, I walked at eight months. That's brutal. And my mom said, you can ask her, she's here. I, this, is not, this is not hyperbolic. Uh, when she would spank me, I would hit her at the kneecaps. <laughs> ask her. I mean, true mom? She's raising her hand, Pentecostal moment. Yes, it is true. So I knew I was lost uh, and, and, and needed to be saved. And so uh, I, I understand my unique position as a Christian. And I thank God for my new position. My old position, I was dead spiritually. My new position, I am alive. Well, why is it important to know that as you head into tough times that are basically prophesied to be tough times? And we live in those days even now. Well, let's, let's look at it. First, he says, but we, so he's speaking about the pastoral team. Uh, and if you read this in the, in the Greek text, uh, the we is the first word in the sentence in the Greek text. That may mean nothing to you, uh, but if you read Greek, it means everything to you because it means that particular 
pronoun is emphatic. So he says, when we as your pastoral team think of you, our church that we planted in Thessalonica and what you're undergoing there, all the persecution uh, within the Roman system, we just think of giving thanks for you. Well, thanks for what? That you're saved. I don't know about you, but when, when I think about you, I mean, at this church, the 3,000 people that go here, uh, the ones who are saved, I thank God you're saved. And I'm praying for the ones that aren't. Saved. Uh, saved from what? Coming wrath of God against sin and sinners as prophesied to occur. So we want to ask, uh, why does Paul head down this road in this particular verse? Uh, when he just talked about eschatology, which by way of review, what is eschatology? Study of the end times, because eschaton means the end in Greek. So it's a study of the end times. So he just spent a lot of time talking about that in the last uh, chapter and in the last book of 1 Thessalonians. Now he's going to talk about how uh, you need to remember that you are a unique child of God as the times grow more chaotic, as prophesied. Why? Well, because they, as they get more complicated, you can uh, fall into despair. You can get depressed because darkness is encroaching. It seems to be uh, advancing in an unchecked manner. And you can even have the devil whispering in your ear, you're not really his child. I mean, come on, look at your life. Etc. So he says, I'm going to first tell you that I thank God for you because brothers, and I would add in our culture, sisters, brothers and sisters, you are beloved by the Lord. He, lo he loves you. you. You tend to forget that he loves you in tough times. And he says, just remember that you are loved. You have a special relationship with the Trinity and it's based on them loving you. Um, first John chapter four, verse 10, we studied uh, first John last year. Uh, John says this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is just a big Greek word which talks about appeasing the anger of God. How do you appease the anger of a holy God toward a sinner? Well, through Christ. Remember the importance of a preposition? It only comes by means of Christ. Uh, and when you come by means of Christ as your savior and your sin is forgiven, uh, your sins are propitiated, meaning God's anger toward you is settled. And it's settled at the cross of Christ. And he says, uh, it, it, this all came about not because we loved God first. No, he loved us first. And we'll talk about the process of getting saved here in just a minute. So God stepped in and, and love was the means by whereby he made us uh, move from being a sinner to a saint. Um, John 3.16 uh, was a verse I had to learn back in 1967. Um, and I had to learn it in the King James. Now it is forever in my mind in the King James. Does this happen to you? Yeah, so I have all my little note cards that Pastor Lind gave me when I got saved. Uh, and I had to memorize this one in, uh, in Romans 3.23 and 6.23 and Romans 10.9. And I mean, all those great Roman road verses. Um, here's one. For God so loved the world. What did he do? Gave his only begotten son. That whoever, whosoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, but have eternal life. He didn't stop there. Uh, verse 17. For God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. Why did he send his son into the world? Well, so that we, we would be saved. Notice the preposition. Through him, not through your works, through his work. Uh, very important. Verse 18. He says that uh, he who believes in him is not judged, like in eternity. Uh, he who does not believe in him has been judged already. Why? Well, because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who know the love of God and it saved them. And they've received that love from Christ and those who reject that. There's only two people. 
love motivated the, the father to send the son and, and love motivated the son to leave the glory of heaven, to come to earth as a servant, to go to the cross, to bear our sins. And you think that God would forget you in tough times? Are these not tough times? No, absolutely they are. Um, the 60s that I grew up in were tough times. You're watching the nation be uh, torn apart during the 60s. I mean, all these things that happen in your life, uh, our day and age is very complicated. But as a Christian, I can look at this and say, uh, whether we're persecuted or whatever it is that we face, God's love for me, God's love for you uh, never goes away because he did all of this to redeem you. How then could he ever forget you? Well, the, the question is uh, answered, well, there's no way he could forget you. Um, your children, you have children? Can you forget them? Well, at times, <laughs> depends on what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, they drive you crazy sometimes, right? And everybody that comes to my office and has marriage problems and says, I think we'll just solve our problem by having a child. That'd make it, like, whoa, we need to talk. Yeah, a, a child is very demanding. Uh, they're a lot of fun, uh, but there's a lot of demands on raising a child. But when you're a parent and you have a child, it doesn't matter what they do, you still love them, right? That's your child. You're not going to forget them. So if you argue from the lesser to the greater, if you as a parent can't forget your child, how in the world could Jesus forget you in tough times? He won't. So he promised in Hebrews 13, 5 to, well, he, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So whenever it's whispering in your ear when times are tough and you hear that in your head, you know, he doesn't really love you. I mean, look at what you just did or look at what's going on around you. If he loved you, this wouldn't be happening. Who's that from? The devil. What do you need to do? Rebuke that voice. Because the Lord's like, no, 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 no. I, I loved you. I loved you enough to save you, and I shall not forget you. So now what is interesting, and Paul doesn't leave it there at the love level, because that's like a heart thing. And if you really like heart things and don't like analytical things, you, you could be sufficient right there. It's like, yeah, he loves me. Eh, Paul's more of a heady guy, isn't he? He is. So he added some more to that and says, well, how exactly did God put you in this unique position of love? Uh, well, the answer is pretty simple. He chose you. I'm going to say it again. How'd you get in that unique love situation? You didn't choose him. He chose you. Oh, so you believe in, in election. You see what I mean? See why this can't be one sermon? Uh, 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 one verse, you know? I mean, but we can't, and there's no way you can talk about this. Paul says he loved you to save you, but how did he, how did he, how did he get his love on you? He chose you. Uh, so if you ask me, Marty, do you believe in election? I'm going to tell you, yes. Why? Because it's all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, if you ask me, do I completely understand how this mystery works? Uh, no. In fact, the greatest minds in the world don't know how it works. Uh, we know that God chooses. Uh, he freely chooses us. And from our perspective, he also tells us we have a choice. So we need to ask several questions about this love relationship that we as a Christian have where he chose me, I didn't choose him. And here are some of my questions. This is not exhaustive, uh, but it kind of help us understand God's choice of us. Uh, question number one, how do you define election, God's choosing? Because the word that he uses here, there's three words in the New Testament for election. The one that he uses here for choosing is not the normal word Paul uses, but they all mean to prefer something. So if you're looking at, um, like I was at uh, the grocery store the other day, and you're looking at um, all the ice cream. <laughs> you, did you do this? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and there's all, there's dryers, there's all, all, this, all these flavors, moose tracks, I mean, all these flavors, Tillamook and all this great stuff. What are you doing? So you reach in there and you're going to pull out mint chocolate chip, Rocky Road, whatever is your go-to. What, you don't love the other ones? No, but I prefer this one. Isn't that what you do when you're choosing? Shopping is a theological venture of election. <laughs> so so God, God is saying, I, I choose, I prefer. Well, that leads to a whole host of other questions. So we want to answer these. So how do you define election? Uh, Wayne Grudem uh, says this, quote, election is an act of God before creation, before creation, uh, in which he chooses some to be saved, uh, not because of any foreseen merit in them. They didn't have to work for it, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure, which as we just read is based on love. So before he ever created the cosmos, he knew in his omniscience, if I create a cosmos and I create a planet that I put everybody on and I put trees in there with fruit, they can eat them. And if I put one tree in there and tell them that tree, don't eat of that one, eat of all the other ones. I know in my omniscience, they're going to, I almost said bite the dust, but that's, you know what I mean? They're, go, they're going to partake. And if they partake, they're going to fall into sin and be spiritually dead. And then I'm going to have to send my son to be the savior. He's omniscient. So omniscience means he doesn't have to learn anything. But, it's, but it says he chose us out of nothing that we had to do. Just he loved some. Uh, question two, well, where do we encounter uh, election in the New Testament? All over the place. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord when they heard the gospel. Uh, and as many as had been hmm, appointed to what? Eternal life, believed. Who appointed them? God. God knew how many I chose. And as many as he knew were going to get saved that day, they became believers that day. Um, Romans 8, 28, a big passage. Um, where Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Why? He loves them. Remember, he will never forgive you, for, forsake you. He'll always be with you. And in all situations, he's always working behind the scenes to sovereignly bless you. He says that he, he does all this to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, because he's omniscient, what do he do? Well, he predestined them to become conformed to the image of his son. Why? Well, that he might be the firstborn uh, among many brethren. And whom he predestined, I mean, chose before the fact, uh, then he also called them. And in whom he called, uh, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. That's the process of salvation. He, he chose you. Uh, and he, he did this before the worlds were formed. Uh, then when he uh, put you on the planet, then he called you. He wooed you unto himself. When I was under the conviction of the spirit and I went to Dr. Lind and asked him one day in his living room, man, I'm feeling really bad about my sin at nine years old. I said, what is this feeling? He goes, he put his arm around me. He goes, Marty, this is the Holy Spirit. And he's talking to you. You need to do something about that. Um, so, it's that uh, so he called me. And once I accepted the call, uh, then I was justified in God's courtroom. No longer guilty. Now I'm innocent based on the blood of Christ. Have you experienced this? have experienced this. Yeah. Have you experienced this? Yeah. Is it exciting? Yeah. He justified you and then he's going to glorify you one day. Think of the joy of this because I'm a called person and I'm in tough times. Why should I not be uh, overly uh, distraught about the tough times? Man, I'm heading to glory. Where are you going? This isn't glory, is it? No, I'm heading there. 
Uh, and so Paul says election is a very important doctrine that you need to think about in tough times. And he, and he weaves it through many of his writings. Question three, when did God choose sinners to become saints? I already told you. This is a test time before the worlds were made. Ephesians 1, notice uh, what he says here. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, why did he choose us? That we should be holy and blameless before him, period. Then he says, in love, he predestined us uh, to be to the adoption of sons. Notice the preposition, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, he chose you. And he did it before the worlds were formed and he did it based on love. And it's mind boggling that he did this. So you, you, you can't get around the fact uh, that God chose some sinners to become saints, which leads to question four. Well, how is choosing some and not others not unfair and capricious? <laughs> Isn't that the question? Because everyone in our culture is like, well, that's just not fair. Everyone gets a trophy. Uh, no, no, let's think about this. Um, in the Garden of Eden, uh, men fell and, into sin. Uh, but God is absolutely holy. So when men fell into sin, what does absolute holiness demand? Absolute judgment on the sinner. I mean, judgment. What'd he do? Grace, mercy. That's what he did. He showed grace and mercy. Remember the Lord, uh, it's intimated that he uh, uh, sacrificed an animal to cover them, their nakedness. I mean, where'd the animal skins come from? If an animal was not slain from the very beginning, he's showing uh, you have to have sacrifice to cover sin. This is grace. This is mercy. And so we know that God moved in grace and mercy. And if you study Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10, you're saved by grace through faith that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest we boast is what he did. Uh, and he did this all based on uh, uh, love for you, that he, that he chose you. So it, he did choose some, but in Romans, uh, uh, chapter, Romans 9, 18, Paul says this when he talks about election, says, uh, so then he has mercy, God, on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. This is a scary part about God. Remember, you're not God. So you, you might have an IQ of 180. It's not even close to God's IQ, right? Uh, his IQ is not, you can't even measure it. Uh, so when it says he chooses whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires, I'm not on his pay grade to question him. You follow? I mean, who am I to tell him, whoa, you're unfair? Because scripture says he's totally fair, right? So I'm the clay, he's the potter. I can ask him questions. I can proof text my questions, which I do with, because I have questions, right? Uh, Lord, I don't want really to offend you or anything, but I'm just kind of wondering, this kind of seems incongruous to me. Could you help me think through this? That's far different than shaking your fist in his face and going, you're not God because etc. Seems like you're, you're not loving. So number one, who am I to argue with the Holy One for him to choose? Because when man fell in the garden, what does holiness demand? Total judgment, nobody gets saved. The fact that he's chose some, total grace and mercy, that's on him. I can go with that. I can rest in that. Question five, uh, doesn't God's choice destroy our free will? I mean, if he chose and he's an omniscient, he knows everything we're going to do, then we're just robots. We got no choice. Kind of seems that way. But again, but we're on a different dimension than God. Our dimensionality is limited. We have no, how many dimensions are there? Remember the rock group? The fifth dimension. One of my favorite groups of all time. Uh, but I mean, but you think about how many dimensions do we have? You don't know? Like three, maybe? 
time could be maybe another one. Yeah, or, or, yeah, yeah. What, what would 100 dimensions look like? <laughs> who knows? I mean, who knows where, where God is and where he dwells? So how God does things and how we do things. Uh, Dr. Norman Geiser, who taught me apologetics when I was working on my doctorate, if you made this kind of statement, you know, you're taking your dimensionality and judging God's dimensionality with it, he would just look at you and go, uh, that is a category mistake. Next question. It was like, whoa, I, huh? Because you can't compare the two. They're, they're not like kind, right? So who knows how it works in his reign? All I know from my perspective, it sure looks like I have a free choice, doesn't it? Now, now think about this. Mark 3.35, uh, Jesus says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother, whoever. So what's the implication? Not everybody will do the will of Jesus, right? Not everybody will, will believe. Um, Romans 10, uh, 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, that's the cause, the effect is, will be saved. What's the implication? Not everybody will call on the name of the Lord, but whoever will. So when you read all through the New Testament, it looks exactly like I have a free will to choose, but God knows what I'm gonna choose, but his choosing doesn't, doesn't cause me to do certain things. I don't know how all that functions. That's the mystery. I just know I have a savior who left the heavens, went to the cross and died for man's sin. And he says, if you come to me, I will save you. If you do not, I will judge you. Now think about this. It would be unjust for God to judge you if everything you did was predetermined. Think about it. If he's absolutely just, how could he judge you for a decision you have no control over? That would be in our terminology as Americans, unfair, you see? But it's totally fair because God is absolutely just and he gives you the opportunity to choose. Um, question number six, if God, there's 600 questions, so this is number six. Um, so that's just a Marty joke if you're new. Uh, question number six, if God chooses some saints to be, uh, some to be saints, does that mean that some sinners don't have a chance? Hmm. Romans 1, 18 through 20, a very interesting passage where Paul says that the unbeliever, which is what I used to be, you suppress the knowledge of God. You willfully do it. You hold down the knowledge. Oh, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna believe that Jesus stuff. Man, those people are weird. And if I become, if I become a Christ follower, look at all the stuff I gotta give up. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I can't, I can't go to a bar. I, I can't look at magazines I shouldn't be looking at. I mean, I just want the freedom to do what I wanna do. Smoke what I wanna smoke, take what I wanna take. And I've had people tell me this. I don't wanna become a Christian because I have to give up stuff. It's worth giving up. I'm just saying. Um, so does it mean that some sinners have no chance? No, they have a chance. Because notice what John, Jesus says in John 5:40. He says to the unbelievers, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse. They had a choice. He said, I gave you all this evidence that I'm the Messiah. And I did it through miracles to prove who I am. And you choose to look at the incontrovertible evidence of what I, what I am able to do as God. And you choose not to believe you are held accountable for your unbelief. Now, again, it would be unjust for him to make that statement if they had no choice, but they have a choice. The thing is, you have a choice. We all have a choice. What are you gonna do with Jesus Christ? That is the question. That's the question our whole country and world need to come to terms with. Now, why is Paul talking about election in a passage just right after eschatology? Well, I have uh, three answers. Number one, 
Since God has chosen you based on love, do you think he's going to forget you? No. So if he's not gonna forget you, no matter what you're facing, whether you work at the Pentagon, NRO, wherever you're working, it's complex working there in your little cubicle, wherever you are, you can't say, oh man, he's totally forgotten me. No, no, his eye is on you. He cares for you. Because remember he says, that, like, if he, if he takes care of the little sparrows, what's he gonna do for you? You, you mean so much more. So he's not gonna forget you because he chose you. Number two, since God has chosen you based on love, he's not going to unchoose you when the going gets rough and you don't perform well. Did you spiritually blow it this week? This is a confessional booth. Did you, this side's really quiet. Did, did you, <laughs> it's a confessional booth. Did you, did you have moments where you're like, I can't believe I did that. Or I told my husband I would never bring that up again. Hmm? <laughs> you know, I can't believe how I'm talking to my children. I mean, wow. I can't believe the words that come out of my mouth. I told the Lord, I'm going to stop all that cussing stuff to look tough. And, and it just comes out. Did you have issues this week? Now they're getting really quiet. Okay, they're <laughs> conviction. No, but, but what's this tell us? Well, you are going to have ups and downs. That's why you have all those commands in the New Testament to live differently. Live like a kingdom mender. But so when you do blow it, then the devil's gonna come whisper in your ear, hey, told you you weren't saved. Look at how you're living. That's ridiculous. No, that's when you rebuke the devil and go, no, I'm just having a rough day, made some bad choices. And uh, wow, carnal moment, God forgive me, help me to live a better life. Amen. And he looks at you and goes, yeah. Because again, go back to you're a parent. If you're a parent and you're, are your children perfect? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No, oh, you're absolutely perfect. We need to talk. Yeah, yeah. Need to pray for this family right here. Um, they're talking during the sermon. It's amazing. They're perfect child. Uh, I'm sure she's great, but you're gonna. No, oh, she's not great. Mom's saying no. It's not there. Okay, mom, a confession. What were we talking about? She, child's gonna blow it. Do you look at your child and go, "It's not my daughter." There's no way it's my daughter. You don't look at your wife and go, "Honey, is that our child?" No, it's not our child. No, you don't do that. I mean, so if you don't do that on that level, what does God do when you, when you blow it in tough times? Well, it's still mine, still mine, and I'll, I'll defend them. That's where Jesus is your advocate. He's your attorney in heaven, in the court, when the devil brings accusations. So you're gonna have rough days. You're gonna have times when you don't do well, but kingdom members are supposed to live like kingdom members. So confess your sin and move on. Answer three about talking about election. Since God has chosen you based on his love, how can you not love him back if he chose you? I mean, I don't, a lot of our families here have adopted children. You might be adopted. And when somebody chooses you and adopts you, because I've had a lot of friends over the years that get adopted. When you get ad adopted, I mean, isn't the natural thing to love those people who chose you? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the natural thing. They chose you. Why? Because they love you. They love you. It's greater with God. He chose you because he loves you. Now, when you think about this process, how did it all come about that we got chosen? I mean, how do we move from being chosen to being saved? Uh, well, notice what Paul says here. Uh, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and in faith and truth. So how did I move from being a called one to being a holy one, a sanctified one? Well, by means of the spirit. So what's the spirit do? John 16 tells you what the spirit does. Jesus says, I tell you the truth that it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, uh, shall not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will, here's his job description. 
Convict the world of, uh, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Holy Spirit comes and brings conviction for sin. That's what the pastor told me when I was like, what in the world is going on? He's like, the Holy Spirit's telling you, you're not saved. You're, you're a sinner. Uh, because I can't get saved if I don't see my sin. So you see your sin. He brings guilt. Maybe you're not a Christian right now and you're struggling with what I struggled with back in 67. You're going, what in the world is going on with me? I mean, I'm, ha I'm looking at myself and I'm kind of not liking what I'm seeing. What's the spirit of God talking to you? And he's basically asking you, what are you, what are you when are you gonna come to Jesus? When are you gonna come to Jesus? He, he comes and he brings a conviction of sin. Acts chapter four. Verse 10, he says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, and by his name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you and the builders, which uh, be, he became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that is given unto men by which he could possibly be saved. No, must be saved. Again, what are you waiting for? Holy Spirit convicts you and says, you need a savior. And you step forward and say, Lord, I am a sinner and I, and I need you. And he saves you. And at that moment, you realize I was a called one. I don't understand the mystery of it, but I, but I was a called one. Uh, he, he convicts the world of sin. He convicts the world concerning the judgment of God that's coming. Revelation uh, chapter 20 at uh, the final judgment of the wicked, it says, I saw a great wine throne, and he that sat upon it, whose presence from earth, the earth and the heaven fled away. There wasn't any place found for him. I saw the dead, the small, the great, standing before the throne. This is of Jesus. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged about the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. I tell you what, I don't want to be at this judgment. And no Christian will be. Because when the, when the lost are judged, it's based upon, is your name in the book of life? Angel, look it up alphabetically, tell me. Is their name in there? Lord, I see no, I, their name isn't in here. Well, let's analyze their works. Do their works justify them in my courtroom? Does it cover their sin? The answer is going to be no. What is the Lord concerned about? The work of his son, not your work. Uh, the spirit convicts the world of the judgment that is to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 uh, tells us how we got holy. It says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You didn't have any of those things. God gives them to you. He gives you the holiness of Christ, positionally. First uh, Corinthians 12, when you became a believer, it says, uh, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That's the Christ body. Whether Jew, Greeks, slaves, free, we were all made to drink of, of one spirit. What he do the moment you became a believer and saw your sin and came to Christ, he, he forgave you of your sin and he mystically baptized you into the body of Christ. How could he do that if you weren't holy? Well, he gave you the holiness of Christ. Um, Galatians 5 tells us that um, this, this whole salvation by the spirit uh, is a very practical thing because he says, but I say I walk by the spirit as a Christian and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. This is the tension. See, before I was a Christian, I didn't care. I just did whatever I pleased. But 
I didn't have the ability to choose righteousness that God would have me to choose. But once you become a Christian and he gives you his spirit, you have the ability to choose righteous behavior over unrighteous. And Paul says, when you've got the spirit dwelling in you, well, you can live in such a way that you produce fruit in your life that's off the grid, like love, joy, peace, patience. I mean, all the stuff that, that you need, it, it comes through the spirit. When you submit to that spirit, you yield to that spirit on a daily basis, your position of holiness becomes practical holiness. And I've told you this many times over, I'll tell you again, the goal of your Christian life is to match those two, to take your lofty position of holiness and to take your practical walk and make that tighter every day. A Christian's speech should be different, shouldn't it? Yeah. A Christian's thinking should be different. Their demeanor should be different. Haven't you ever met a person you thought, I just know they're saved. I can tell. And then you ask them and they are demeanor. Their answers to life's issues are different. Their response to being persecuted is different. Their response to being mistreated is different. I mean, go down the list. Why? They're a kingdom member. And if you're a kingdom member chosen by God, well then go out and live like it because that's exactly what the world needs. And as you do that in tough times, the Lord is with you. Why? He chose you because he loved you. Let's stand and pray. God, we pause to give you thanks for loving us and saving us and drawing us into yourself. We do not understand the mystery uh, of, of your choice, but we relish in the fact that you did save some and that heaven will be populated with those who turn to you. Uh, we pray for those who don't know you in our church, that they would be drawn unto you and that they would experience the love of a savior that washes their soul clean in Christ's name. Amen.